Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. Planetary Radio is public radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m. right here on KUCI. Don't flush your money down the auto repair shop. The California Association of Regulatory Investigators and Inspectors would like to remind you that your vehicle's manual has the proper service schedule. While many automotive repair shops will try to sell you extras, the fact is that your car will be perfectly happy with the maintenance schedule outlined in the little book in your glove box, and you will be perfectly happy with the money you save by not paying for unnecessary repairs. Remember to tell the service advisor that you want the factory-recommended services listed in the owner's manual of your car. And don't be pushed into buying services such as engine, transmission, or fuel injection flushes unless recommended by the manufacturer. This message is brought to you by the California Association of Regulatory Investigators and Inspectors, an affiliate of CAUSE, a statewide law enforcement association. For further information, call Bruce Hotchkiss at 650-678-0352. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and at KUCI.org online. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, this show's engineer, and your host is Mari. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. You may have heard her on the radio. And she had her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Well, good evening. I am, have such a great guest tonight. You know, I've been reading this book called Scandal, How Gotcha Politics is Destroying America by Lanny Davis. And I also had read an op-ed piece by him because, you know, he had sat at on Bush's uh, privacy committee 
All right. Privacy and Civil Liberties Committee. And he resigned and he wrote an op-ed piece about it. And I thought, oh, if I could just get him on the show. The guy is so nice that he agreed to do this. And right now he's actually driving and going to be speaking to us. So we're thrilled to have you. Lanny, are you there? I am. Thank you, Mari. It's a pleasure to be on. And let me talk a little bit about who you are. So um, just to make sure that everybody gets to know exactly who you are, because you're pretty terrific. Lanny is an attorney and a partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm of ORIC. Mr. Davis advises clients on a wide range of legal and governmental issues. In June 2005, President Bush appointed Lanny Davis to serve on the five-member Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which was created by Congress as part of the 2005 Intelligence Reform Act. Then, Lanny Davis served as special counsel to President Clinton at the White House, and he was spokesperson for the president on matters concerning investigations and other legal issues, and he had to deal with the press all the time, which I'm sure was lots of fun. And also, he has participated in national, state, and local politics for almost 30 years. He has done a tremendous amount of work with the Democratic National Committee, and he also has written extensively on politics for many years in a variety of publications. He's the author of several books that you probably want to read because they're terrific. He's the author of Truth to Tell, Notes from My White House Education, and that was back in 1999 when that was published by the Free Press. Uh, Tom Brokow of NBC News said at that time, Lanny Davis has written a book that should be required reading for all Washington officials and journalists alike. It's an instructive and cautionary tale of the constant struggle to know the truth of what's going on at the highest level of government. He's also the author of Emerging a Democratic Majority, Lessons and Legacies from the New Politics, and he is also, as I said, his new book, which is called S- Scandal, is uh, really a great history. And he's he's so genuine in this book that he admits to some things that he's done, too, that, that he looks at differently now as he's older, wiser. In uh, between 1990 and 1996, uh, he was a bi-monthly commentator on Maryland politics for for a Washington, D.C. radio show, NPR. He's been a regular television commentator. I'm always seeing him on TV, and I'm also seeing him uh, in, the, in the press and his op-ed piece. He's terrific, and I'm so thrilled that you're joining us. Lanny, how's, how's the driving? Uh, Mari, uh, nobody other than my mother could have given me a better introduction <laughs> than that. So thank you so much. The driving is fine, and it's really a, a privilege to be on your show and your prominence as a privacy expert, especially. Uh, it will be interesting to talk about my uh, service uh, on President Bush's. The actual title is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight board, which was a creation of a recommendation of the 9-11 Commission. Perfect. Now tell us, why was it created? Why did they say that they were creating it at the time? Well, the 9-11 Commission wanted to set up uh, virtually uh, an independent agency within the executive branch that would act like an inspector general or something like the Federal Trade Commission or the Federal Communications Commission that is part of the executive branch but able to oversee the executive branch. And unfortunately, the way that legislation often works, a compromise was worked out between the original concept of an independent agency and the White House, uh, President Bush, was opposed to that. And the compromise was to appoint a board by the president, only two people confirmed, three people just appointed, but put them within the office of the president rather than an independent agency. 
And the idea was, by being within the office of the president, reporting to the president, there would be more access, more trust, and maybe more ability to fix what might be wrong in privacy and civil liberties in the fight against terrorism, possible excesses. The way it turned out is uh, it was a square peg in a round hole, and it just didn't work. So as a former White House counsel for President Clinton and a Democrat, it, it probably was really an honor, and everybody was probably shocked when, when you were selected by a Republican president. And I understand you were both at Yale about the same time, but um, what kind of relationship did you have with the president? Well, there is a funny story, if you don't mind a quick anecdote. Oh, I um, loved anecdotes. <laughs> first of all, uh, George Bush and I were friends at together. We lived in the same uh, residential college called Davenport College, which is a small community uh, within Yale of 12 different small residential colleges. We were uh, actually living near one another. I was a year ahead of him. And we were in the same social fraternity, uh, Delta Kappa Epsilon, so we had a chance to party together. So <laughs> we were pretty, um, and no, I did not inhale, so I'm not <laughs> going to go there. Okay, I wasn't going to ask. All right. That's so, privacy, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we were, uh, yes, too much information. We were friends, and when uh, he got elected president, I stayed in touch with him. I opposed virtually every one of his policies. Uh, especially the war in Iraq, but I still appreciate him as a human being and uh, admire him as a human being. So when I got the call from the White House, it was a young woman who identified herself from the Office of Presidential Personnel, and she said, uh, we had a meeting this morning, and this five-member board has to have at least one Democrat, and President Bush said, why don't you call my friend Lanny Davis, and that's why we're calling so I said, well, that's very nice. Uh, let me think about it. And she said, well, honestly, Mr. Davis, let me tell you that when President Bush said, why don't we call my friend Lanny Davis, we just about fell off our chairs. <laughs> and I said, well, don't be too shocked. Sometimes people who have political differences can still uh, respect one another, which, of course, is the central theme of the book that I recently wrote uh, about how gotcha politics is destroying America. Right. There's a real, you know, it's funny when you talked about that in your in your book, and, you know, I teach mediation at UCI uh, in the conflict management department, and we always talk about the difference between relationship issues versus substantive issues. And that's exactly what you talk about in the book, is that you can have a good relationship and still disagree on substantive issues. So there, there are two different negotiations going on at once, but unfortunately that got convoluted, hasn't it? Unfortunately, uh, both parties, and myself included, get caught up in the uh, partisan loyalties that you develop as a Democrat and a Republican, and partisanship is a good thing. It means you feel strongly about a set of principles that are associated with a political party, so I have no problem with partisanship, as long as it leads to a debate on issues, but you have called uh, very correctly substantive uh, negotiations, substantive discussions. The problem is that when disagreement then crosses over into personal attack and accusation, uh, not only is the debate lost, but the acrimony poisons the political process. And we've seen that on both sides, really, starting with the Democrats in the 1980s and then right back in a cycle of gotcha to uh, the Republicans doing it back to the Democrats with President Clinton in the White House in the 1990s. 
Yeah. You know, I want to get back to that because I still want to finish up about this this privacy council that you were sitting on because I think that's important. And then I want to definitely get into your book. So can we go back a little bit sure. and talk about how was it for you? You were the only Democrat on this committee. And um, how was that for you on that oversight board? Well, I quickly found it didn't matter that I was a liberal Democrat or uh, versus uh, other people on the board who were Republicans who would consider themselves to be conservatives. Uh, when we were focusing on the war against terrorism, uh, we recognized that there really was no Democratic or Republican view on uh, the necessity to protect our country and ourselves and our children from these terrible murders and to prevent another 9-11. So going in, we all shared uh, that uh, common goal. Uh, the difference might have been in sensitivity levels to civil liberties values and to uh, privacy values, which are pretty subjective. And you can have differences of opinion about how far you should bend in the direction of protecting civil liberties and privacy if there's any uh, sacrifice required in defeating the terrorists. And that's the balance. There is no right answer or wrong answer. Uh, it does require a balance. I did uh, find some disagreement in where that balance should be struck, but much less than I would have anticipated, given the labeling that we see in America between liberals and conservatives on these issues. I found, in fact, uh, very minor differences of opinion on where the balance should be struck. Right. So, so tell us about the reasons for your resignation from that board. Well, it wasn't because of the differences of opinion with my fellow board members or even differences with the Bush uh, administration policies. It was more about the incompatibility, as I described earlier, with a body that was within the office of the president doing oversight on the office of the president and the executive branch. That incompatibility put us in a position where we were expected to be independent, but we were not treated as if we were independent. Congress created this hybrid, and it turned out to me to be uh, simply incompatible. So when we wrote a report to the Congress, I thought that report was completely independent and had no uh, capability of being reviewed or evaluated or even uh, critiqued by members of the White House staff. Instead, I discovered after the report was drafted and we were addressing some of the controversial issues, such as the national security letter usage and abuses by the FBI, uh, possible abuses in the way the terrorist surveillance program, warrantless uh, uh, overhearing of conversations to try to find terrorist cells. That was a source of great controversy, first published in the New York Times. Those were the issues that I felt we were supposed to be addressing in our report. And instead, I found that the White House was regarding us as just another office of the White House to be supervised, reviewed, managed, even uh, edited mm. by members of the White House staff. And that's when I decided that this really wasn't uh, working and the two were incompatible. Congress needed to fix it, and I just thought it wasn't useful for me to continue. Lanny, there were five of you on the board that directed this report together, and you all signed off on it when you sent it to the White House. Am I correct? Yes. And so all of you were in agreement on what should be in there. Uh, were you the only one was that was concerned that it was going to be edited and changed to to meet the uh, White House, uh, you know, overview? 
You know, I'd rather not get into okay. Okay. Um, what we had between us, but I can say, which is a public fact, that some of the board members were uh, uncomfortable with the editing process. Some were not. And the honest disagreement was whether Congress intended us to be overseen by members of the White House staff or whether we were intended to be independent. The real problem is the legislation said both, so there was no right or no wrong. But I think within the board, there were different levels of comfort with the editing that occurred. Mine was certainly the most uncomfortable, which is what led me to resign. Now, Lanny, you're very articulate, and you've always been pretty outspoken about things. You're a prolific writer, a fantastic speaker. You're, you know, you've been a radio host. Um, before you resigned, didn't you talk to anybody about this? Like, hey, can't you just give us this uh, this freedom to, to say what we really believe is right, and this is going to be sure transparency? Did. Yeah. I sure did. And by the way, you conduct a great interview because you asked sort of the core question, so... <laughs> Thank you. You're good, at, you're good at this. Uh, the first person I went to was the White House counsel who had replaced Harriet Myers, and his name was Fred Field, is Fred Fielding, somebody who was on the 9-11 Commission, therefore signed off and voted for creating an independent body of this Privacy Civil Liberties Board. Fortunately, Fred Fielding was at the White House just at the moment that all this came to a head, I had known him uh, before. He was actually, interestingly, an important historical figure. He was the deputy White House counsel to John Dean, trivia question, who's yeah. Fred Fielding. He was there during Watergate. Oh. And uh, really a great man, a great statesman, uh, sort of a Clark Clifford type of figure in Washington. I went to him, told him how uncomfortable I was with this editing process that had gone on, that it was inconsistent with what he himself had recommended as a member of the 9-11 Commission. He was completely supportive and sympathetic, and he went right back to the people who did the editing and said, this is unacceptable, and he backed me to the hilt, and as a result, most of the edits and the deletions were restored, at least the ones that I thought were most important. Uh, the problem for me in continuing is that it wasn't really going to work for me to have to go back to Fred Fielding every time that we were going to be treated like another office in the White House. So I needed uh, the commitment uh, from the highest levels of the executive branch, and that means the president and all the other individuals in the national security apparatus and the intelligence agencies, basically three words, leave them alone and let us be completely independent. And I was unable to get that level of assurance uh, that anything would really change, and I did not look forward to running back to Fred Fielding every time I had a complaint. So I just thought uh, it was a good time to leave and basically throw the ball back to the Congress to say, if you want an independent agency, you need to fix uh, the problem that you created in this hybrid that I wasn't really very confident could, could ever really change. You know, Lanny, with all your influence, couldn't there be some legislation that you could help orchestrate to to set up some kind of independent privacy commission? Like most of the economically developed countries have privacy commissions. Canada has one, New Zealand, Australia, all of them have privacy commissions that would be some kind of an oversight board that looks at these issues. Is there any chance for something like that here? Well, Congress is now reviewing uh, the uh, legislation that originally created the board. Some say that my resignation helped increase 
attention to the problem, but I think they already were looking at this. There already were bills introduced by both uh, Senators Lieberman and Collins and Congressman Shays and Maloney in the House uh, trying to fix the problem. I will be testifying on this subject before a House subcommittee led by Congresswoman Sanchez of California concerning whether there should be legislative changes to make the Privacy Board more independent, and we'll see whether Congress uh, is willing to do that. And of course, uh, the president's going to have to be convinced, because I doubt there will be a veto-proof vote on such an issue. So there has to be some kind of a consensus uh, with the White House as well. And I'm not very confident that the White House will change its thinking that it doesn't, uh, at the moment, want an independent agency providing oversight on privacy and civil liberties issues. Well, Lanny, you can point to many of these economically advanced countries that have privacy commissions. You know, all the European Union has privacy commissions. And so it could, you know, it might be very helpful to to look to those and see how they're doing and and what they're doing and how it's making an impact on, on some of these issues. Um, according to the to your board, when you were sitting there, what kinds of civil liberty safeguards were incorporated into the various surveillance programs that were meant to stop terrorism here? Did they think that there really were some safeguards? Did you see them? Yes, uh, this may surprise you. I was very reassured, uh, felt a level of confidence that surprised me. When we were finally, uh, quote, read in, meaning given full access and briefing, about the top classified program that currently exists in the United States government, which is called the Terrorist Surveillance Program that was first um, uh, revealed by the New York Times. And this is the program that allows uh, people at intelligence agencies to overhear and listen in on uh, telephone conversations and other communications in order to prevent another 9-11. And, of course, uh, civil libertarians, <clears throat> such as myself, were quite concerned that this was being conducted without the supervision of a court, without a warrant, uh, with probable cause. All of the standards under the Fourth Amendment appeared to have been abandoned. So I initially was quite concerned as a privacy-sensitive uh, person and a civil libertarian. Once I was fully exposed to the program, I certainly still believe there needed to be judicial supervision and a better legal foundation than the administration originally had. But when I met the people and saw the safeguards, the checks and balances, the supervision, and most importantly, the individuals who were doing this program within uh, the National Security Agency and other intelligence agencies were very, very conscientious people concerned about civil liberties. As one young man said to me, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I've got a family. I don't want my conversations listened in on. I want privacy. And we're all very aware that we have to be very careful. So I left uh, the briefing in highly classified locations, and I was willing to say publicly and quoted in the Associated Press uh, that surprised some people who were my fellow traveler, uh, civil libertarian liberals, I was reassured that we had the people that we had working on this program. Uh, I still believe there should have been a better legal foundation. I think the administration finally did get uh, supervision from what's called uh, the FISA court, which is a special court set up to review these uh, intelligence-oriented programs. But I do 
think it's an important program, a necessary program, and I was impressed with the people who are conducting the program, uh, that they are uh, helping to prevent future 9-11s and that they're quite conscientious about civil liberties. Well, that's good to hear. We're speaking with Lanny Davis, who's an attorney and author of several books, including his new book, Scandal, How Gotcha Politics is Destroying America, which I just finished reading last week. It's terrific. And he's also, well, he also was special counsel to the uh, uh, Clinton administration, and he was the former Privacy Oversight Board member for President Bush. So let's switch gears now, and let's talk about what it was like in the Clinton administration. I don't know if you had seen when I wrote you that email that I actually was asked to come in 1999 to speak at the White House. This was after you were gone, but uh, Secretary Treasury, I mean, Treasurer Rubin was there as the Secretary of the Treasury, and I was to speak uh, to at the White House about Gramm-Leach-Bliley and identity theft and the need for uh, privacy legislation. And uh, so that was pretty exciting, I, you know, because I'm not in politics like you are. I don't know all the whole Washington scene, so I got to go there, and, and he was very charming, Hillary was very nice. It was uh, just a, an exciting—it must be really exciting to have been in the White House. Well, it was a great job, great privilege. Uh, I was a friend of uh, First Lady, now Senator Clinton, uh, back uh, from law school days. I didn't meet uh, then uh, Bill Clinton and future Governor Bill Clinton until after I had graduated, but was still in New Haven. And uh, I've known both of them for many, many years. But uh, working in the White House and walking down the driveway early in the morning with the house lit up, thinking uh, where I was walking were maybe the same places that Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt walked and all the other history uh, that surrounded me. Uh, whenever I was having a bad day at the White House in my job handling all the scandal stories, which is to say virtually every day. <laughs> I was going to say, you said that in your book. <laughs> I would uh, cross the street, and literally as a cure to the bad day I was having, I would go having uh, privileges to walk around anywhere that I wanted. I took advantage, and I would just walk over to the great mansion and just find a room and uh, study it and look through it and try to read books that were in the bookshelves and uh, learn a lot of history about the White House. So for me, uh, every day that I was there was special, uh, and uh, I hope I did some good in helping put things in perspective with all the scandal machine out there that I think turned off so many Americans, as it still does, but it was still a privilege to work there. Well, what was the best part of it, and what was the, what was the real learning well, the best part of it was walking down the driveway in the morning. As soon as I got to my desk, it all was bad. <laughs> and then the other best part of it is when I would leave at night, I would walk out the driveway, and that was the best part. Uh, you know, my job was uh, to take uh, terrible phone calls. I know. Uh, I was referred uh, to by my best friend and patron at the White House was Mike McCurry, the presidential press secretary, who, whenever he got a scandal question, would say, I don't answer those questions, call Lanny Davis. <laughs> and, well, what uh, a friend. Is that a friend or what? <laughs> well, yes, yeah, some friend. Uh, he would refer to me as the blankety-blank sponge <laughs> with the blankety-blank rhyming with the word hit. <laughs> uh, so I was that 
sponge taking the nasty questions. Oh, goodness. And, um, but it was, a, unfortunately, a product of our times that so many valuable, creative, intelligent, gifted people devoted their time to dealing with innuendo, scandal, sensationalist stories in newspapers that had very little to do with what the American people really cared about. It was such a waste of energy. Oh, and money. And oh, money. And, and time. time yeah. When uh, there are so many problems that the country uh, wanted uh, us to be thinking about rather than, you know, whether Charlie Tree wrote a series of checks to Bill Clinton that had the same uh, number sequence and therefore he was doing something wrong or I guess the big story that I had to deal with was whether or not President Clinton invited fat cats to stay overnight in the Lincoln bedroom, Right. which at the end of the day, I revealed the shocking fact that presidents invite fat cats to stay overnight at the White House, who are loyal to their party and are expected to contribute money to their party. And after all of that shocking information was put out by the Clinton White House, we reminded everyone that George Bush had many a wealthy Republican stay overnight at the Lincoln bedroom or some other bedroom in the White House. And Ronald Reagan stood up in the East Room of the White House and actually pitched what he called the Republican Eagles, who were fat cats who gave the Republican Party a lot of money, uh, to give more money while he was actually standing up in the East Room. And we found the videotape with Ronald Reagan doing the same thing. So that's the way we dealt with these stories that right. I write about in my first book. And what a waste. It yeah. just, uh, doesn't help educate a single child. doesn't provide health care for a single family. It's just uh, the scandal machine, both uh, Democrats and Republicans, are just wasting taxpayers' money. So, Lanny, did you ever stay in the Lincoln bedroom? <laughs> uh, I was would have loved to had I been invited, uh, but uh, I was chained to my desk answering these nasty phone calls from the scandal machine reporters. But I did sneak up there, uh, not sneak up, but I was up there in the private residence one day, and I asked, can I see the Lincoln bedroom after all? I spent a lot of time feeling pain about it. I'd like to at least look at it. And it was really uh, amazing. Right there uh, on the little desk was uh, a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation an original copy. Of course, it was protected in glass, but uh, there was Abraham Lincoln's signature, and that was pretty neat. You know, Lenny, when I've, I lived on the East Coast, I, I lived in New York, and I lived in Virginia, and when I lived in Virginia, it was, I lived in Charlottesville, you know, University of Virginia area, and uh, when I lived there, it was like living history, kind of like what you're talking about with Washington. We used to go up to D.C. all the time and go to Josh, George Washington's home and, of course, the White House and then Thomas Jefferson's home. And I know that feeling. You just feel like, oh, my goodness, this is so exciting to be where our forefathers. And then I read your book about all this history, about what went on, and uh, fascinating, because I remember when I lived in Charlottesville, and they would talk about Thomas Jefferson as if he was alive. It's like, okay, well, Tom would say this, you know, because everything is, is like Monticello's there. The whole university was designed by Thomas Jefferson. It is really Thomas Jefferson's city, but everybody knew about his affair with Sally Hemings. 
And you talked about the fact that in your book, you talk about the history there, and you describe how historically there were scandals in politics, even including Alexander Hamilton, who was uh, had an affair that he actually wrote about and was transparent about, and Thomas Jefferson's affair with Sally Hemings, his slave, and he never even admitted to it. So uh, it, there were a lot of those. Even you talked about all the way up to through Kennedy. So uh, tell me, until then, the, there were all these scandals. How were they? They were handled by the media very differently, weren't they? Yes, there were. Uh, I write my book in scandal. There were less um, technological magnifiers, is the best expression. In the days of Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, who hated each other, you know, they used uh, rumors and gossip and some uh, types of newspapers that were sort of daily rag sheets to go after each other. They didn't have the Internet where misinformation can circle the globe in a split second. Right. They didn't have 24-7 cable television. They didn't have Ann Coulter, for God's sake. Uh, <laughs> oh. Imagine Ann Coulter let loose on Alexander Hamilton when he was having his affair uh, with a married woman. Uh, apart course, from the fact but but that, he actually came out and, and said it. Yes, I did well, it. You know, he admitted to it. He admitted to it when he was busted and it had already leaked out and he decided to tell the full story himself right. following the subtitle of a book written 100, uh, 200 years later called Truth to Tell, Tell It All, Tell It Early, Tell It Yourself by yours truly. Uh, yes, he actually yes. Wrote, he actually wrote a 50,000 word, as as you know from my first chapter, Yes. Uh, Tell it all version of why he got entrapped. Uh, of course, his uh, his male hormones are, did more the entrapping than anything else. But right. he nevertheless was concerned about being accused of corruption because he was paying this woman money, which was really hush money. But it was about not letting people know about the affair, not because he was doing anything corrupt as Treasury Secretary. So it turns out, ironically, he decided to disclose the affair, not because uh, of the private indiscretion, but because he didn't want to be accused of public corruption. Yeah, yeah. But then then again, there was no Internet, and there wasn't this 24-7 food fight culture on cable television, and it uh, really is a much different order of magnitude of destructiveness that Bill Clinton first experienced because all this came together in addition to the independent counsel statute during the Clinton years and is still with us uh, during the Bush years. And it's why things haven't changed all that much even after Bill Clinton left office in terms of the scandal machinery and uh, the investigative uh, impulse that now Democrats seem to have fallen into even after they won the 2006 congressional elections. We're listening right now, and we're speaking with a wonderful attorney and a Washington insider, Lanny Davis, who's an attorney in the Washington, D.C. firm of Oric Law Firm. He is an author of several books. He's former special counsel to President Clinton. He's also former privacy officer, I'm sorry, privacy oversight board um, board member for President Bush. I think he should have been privacy officer. <laughs> And um, and so we're talking about his new book, 
called Scandal, How Gotcha Politics is Destroying America. So, Lanny, let's talk with, let's find out what you mean by gotcha, gotcha politics. Well, I guess it is the human uh, fundamental instinct to uh, strike back after you've been stricken. And we're never going to get rid of that instinct in human nature. It starts as kids and it carries on into adulthood. But it is an infection in the American political system if it leads to a never-ending cycle of misuse of talent and energy in a negative uh, direction rather than using government to solve people's problems. And I saw the um, phenomenon, which I think we're now experiencing as Democrats today, that the American people are so fed up with this cycle that even after electing Democrats in a great victory in the congressional elections of 2006, where we Democrats took back the House and the Senate, we are now, as a congressional Democratic Party, rated below in approval rating, even George Bush, who is at an all-time low for a president. I think one of the main reasons for that is the only real activity that people know about are Democratic uh, committee chairmen investigating the Bush White House for good and valid reasons, you could always say, but it's still back to the cycle of investigations leading to investigations. Meanwhile, we're not addressing the major problems facing the country, and I think that's the reason the American people are giving the Democratic Congress such low approval ratings. Right. And and also you talked about this, the change in politics that also came into the hate. You said that started like with Nixon. You said even your dad um, was to the point where he was, start, rather than just agreeing, it started to turn into hate to, to the personal thing rather than the substantive issues. Talk about that. How, how has that really affected our political process now? Well, again, you ask extremely good questions, uh, Mari. The word hate ought to be banned uh, other than people who uh, really have uh, an imbalance to the point of not being serious uh, commentators, and they use words like hate. And you know who I'm talking about who are frequent guests on these food fight cable shows. Right, right. I think disagree is the word that we should be using in politics rather than hate. Or as President Clinton said in my opening section of my book, I describe a real incident where President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton went back to the White House for their unveiling of their official portraits. And President Bush uh, surprised all the Clinton supporters in the East Room who were gathered by being very gracious and welcoming the Clintons back to the White House. And President Clinton took the podium and pointed at President Bush, and everyone knew how far apart both of them were on almost every issue. And yet President Clinton said, you know, President Bush, your graciousness today reminds me that you can say someone is right or wrong without saying they're good or evil. And Bill Clinton understands the difference between uh, disagreeing and hate, because he was the victim of people who didn't understand that distinction. And that's really what we've lost uh, to a great extent in this uh, scandal culture that uh, has led to what I call gotcha politics. 
Yeah. One of the things I, I especially liked about your book was that you, you showed that this is not just Republicans. I mean, being a Democrat, you were very sensitive to the fact that you could see and you showed throughout the book historically what has been happening with this, I'll get you an eye for an eye, you know, the, the Democrats start, then the Republicans start, then the Democrats, you know, back and forth, back and forth, and that they're equally as guilty as to that kind of gotcha politics. And I, I thought it was also cute. You were willing to to be real honest about yourself, saying that when some of this stuff would happen, at first you would relish if it if it happened to the Republicans, and then of course you saw that it's uh, like a boomerang. It would happen to the Democrats. So so tell me, um, let's let, what, what can we do about this? I mean, well, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm frequently asked that question because uh, everyone seems to agree with my point, but no one knows what to do with it. Which is, is this ever going to change? And I really think it will not change unless uh, it comes from the bottom up. Uh, politicians respond to positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. I always uh, analogize that statement to the Skinner box where the rat has a decision to make whether he turns to the right uh, where he thinks there might be food or to the left where he thinks there might be food. And over a period of time, there's a shock to the right and there's food on the left. Even a rat learns to turn to the left to avoid the shock. Right. So whether politicians uh, in both parties are smarter than rats is a very good question. You never thought we'd be talking about rats and politicians <laughs> on this phone conversation. Oh, never. <laughs> if the American people provide the shock therapy of not rewarding politicians who resort to accusations and scandal and investigations and reward politicians who are addressing and debating issues and looking for solutions, then even uh, the rat in the Skinner box learns sooner or later to turn to the right to get the food and not to get the shock. So we're going to have to wait for the American people to literally speak for up and uh, penalize uh, politicians who are just uh, engaged in food fight and and attack politics rather than trying to solve You know, Lanny, a lot of this comes through the media, you know, um, and, and I think the media is going to have to make some changes, don't you? Because- yes, of course, the media needs to make changes, but uh, that's like... King Canute standing up against the ocean telling the waves to stop breaking. It's just not going to happen. Uh, The media uh, has uh, forces internal that cannot be beaten. One force is ambition. Getting a maximum amount of airtime, a maximum amount of column inches, and maybe becoming the next generation of Woodward and Bernstein and having Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman play you in a movie. Right, right. You talked about that in your book. Yeah. Just not going to change. So they're going to chase uh, stories that are negative that bring down important politicians because that's the way to get ahead. And uh, maybe uh, the analogy again is to whether readers of newspapers or readers of blogs or internet sites will reward uh those places that focus on issues rather than sensational stories about scandal. But if anyone believes that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I'll sell you for $5. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the thing is, is, I think one of the things when you were talking about the Internet and how that's, you know, contributed to a lot of this, the scandals that get spread and, and transferred in a nanosecond at the same time, it does empower people. Anybody can be a journalist if you're on the Internet, Right. 
anybody can be a journalist to talk about these things. I think one of the things that's helpful is people like you that will speak to a station like this or that you'll write your op-ed pieces and get it in the newspaper. I think those kinds of things are really important. And then, you know, when people hear you, Lanny, they get excited. You know, I, I heard you and I said, this guy's right. I read your book. I said, you know, there's a lot that he has to say. We have to learn from this. And I think it's that is the only way we can get this to the American people is through the media. So, you know, I mean, the media has it, the dark side and, and the bright side. Well, I really want to thank you for your many, many compliments in this phone conversation. So what I would like to propose is that I pay for your ticket and that you come to my house and you certainly need to defend me when my wife disagrees with a lot of your compliments. But most importantly, when my nine-year-old uh, doesn't seem to understand when I say do something and he argues with me, I'll have to have you around to say listen to your father. Well, you know, I am a mediator. So, I mean, that is exactly. what I, that's what I've been for 22 years, and I teach that. So, you know, to me, it, it would be a lot of fun. I could do that easily with you and your wife, and I could do that with you and your kids. So that I'll, I'll be happy to come out there. Well, but, I have an older son that uh, is uh, also not exactly listening to his father. This <laughs> is uh, uh, my older son, who's 37 years old, who is a CBS sports uh, celebrity, does the NCAA college basketball tournament halftime show with Greg Gumbel and Clark Kellogg. His oh, name is fun. Seth. His name is Seth Davis, and very, very uh, uh, good-looking and intelligent young man who's better on television than his father. <laughs> the only problem is that he's come out publicly and endorsed Barack Obama for president rather than my candidate, Hillary Rodham Clinton. <laughs> well... You know what? Because you can still have a relationship and still have different perspectives, correct? You don't well, I, I was going to call you in <laughs> for advice on this, but I got a call from a reporter from the Hill newspaper saying, how come your son has endorsed Obama when you're so associated with the Clintons? <laughs> so I gave him a, a comment because he'd already gotten a comment from my son who didn't call his father to ask whether he ought to be quoted in the newspaper <laughs> on this subject. So I said to the reporter, which was published the next day in the Hill newspaper and got a lot of chuckles around town, uh, look, I always taught my children to have independent minds and make their own political judgments not influenced by their father. Good for you. I just, <laughs> but, I said, I just didn't think that my son Seth would take me literally. <laughs> Well, you know, you have to walk your talk. If you think that there needs to be independence, then, you know, with regard to certain things like, uh, you know, oversight committees, then you have to have independence of your children. They're exactly. not always going to, you know. It's funny because, you know, I'm I'm from the 60s generation, and so I didn't ag agree with my parents. And then I was more liberal, and then my kids are more conservative. So what can I tell you? You know, they have to be different from us. But let me let me ask you. Know recently we we uh, got rented the movie by Robin Williams, Man of the Year, and I was thinking it was funny because I was seeing that after I had read your book, and uh, I thought, did you, did you ever see that with Robin Williams where he gets uh, elected president? He's really a comedian, and he gets elected president by because of a computer glitch. Did you ever see that, Lanny? You know, I never saw the movie, but I know about the movie. Oh, and, you have to uh, rent it. I love Robin Williams, so now I'm going to go out and rent it. Oh, you have to. It's so funny, but he. You know, just he basically says what you say in your book. 
you know, I mean, he's so sick of people not focusing on issues and everybody being, being disingenuous and all this stuff. So he decides he's going to tell the truth. So he really tells the truth. And uh, I was going to ask you if you had seen that and how do we instill that kind of uh, genuineness in our politicians? Is, is it possible? Well, um, I think it is, and I think there are uh, many, many people in public life, and we underappreciate our politicians who are honest people who try to do the best they can, who lose a lot of their privacy and are subject to these innuendo and smears and and uh, scandal stories uh, that sometimes can ruin their lives uh, because they have uh, personal weaknesses that have nothing to do with their public performance. And I'm not just talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about this uh, on both sides of the aisle. So we need uh, to reward uh, people who seek su- public service. It's very easy to bash uh, politicians. And when I'm talking to young people, uh, high schools and college audiences, I always say, look, everybody in this room that thinks that politicians are rotten, next time you think that way, go look in the mirror and you'll see who's responsible because they're a reflection of ourselves. And if only the worst people run for public office, then you can't complain about who's running your lives. Exactly. The best people need to seek public office. When I was uh, in high school, I was inspired by John Kennedy, as I guess you were sure. of the 60s. And uh, the best and the brightest were the people who saw politics as a noble profession. Nowadays, it's exactly the opposite. We do have to return to that ethic. So, Lanny, are, are you going to be running for office anytime soon? Um with a nine-year-old and a two-year-old, the answer is absolutely not, unless I develop an oil well in my backyard and don't have to worry about college education tuition. Right. Uh, but I certainly uh, am working very hard for Senator Clinton, who I do believe will be our next president. And I uh, think everybody, whether you're Republican or Democrat, this next election may be the most important election of our lives, uh, the situation in Iraq global warming, and uh, the basic fundamentals of uh, protecting our families is at stake in uh, the 2008 election, as almost any election you can think of. So it doesn't matter whether you're liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, everybody listening to this show uh, should get involved in a presidential campaign because this one, the stakes are very, very big. Right. You know, I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about... um the independent council thing. I know one of the things that you thought was one of the the real problems with all this gotcha politics was the Independent Council Act, which was born out of the Nixon Watergate area era, and um, you know years and years of controversy from that. So, what effect has has that gotten on politics today, and what do you think is going to happen in the future with that? Well, uh, fortunately, the Independent Council uh, was a monster created by uh, us Democrats, uh, and we have to pay the price to the history books. It was our idea, and we misused it and abused it in the 1980s against Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Uh, Bush, Bush one, and then it came back to haunt President Clinton uh, in the cycle of gotcha that I describe in my book. But fortunately, uh, after 10 Star, uh, everybody agreed never again, and it was allowed to expire and die a natural death and not get renewed. It was so bad that even the person that helped kill it, Ken Starr, himself didn't want to renew it. So 
Right. Uh, fortunately, that was an example of reform impulses going crazy after Watergate. Democrats wanted an independent prosecutor who wouldn't be subject to political influence, which was exactly the problem. Politics is the only thing that stands between us and government tyranny. Politics is about people and accountability and being held accountable when you do something that's excessive. And that's what the Attorney General of the United States and the President of the United States have to worry about is a political firestorm if they abuse their prosecutorial power. The independent counsel that we Democrats created and then Republicans took advantage of had no accountability, couldn't be fired, had no limit on budget, and therefore was tempted to be abusive, which is exactly what happened. So there is no more independent counsel. Right. But we still have dangers of governmental power uh, in excess. That's really returning to our early topic that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board was created to provide oversight when we have the natural impulse to do anything, and no matter what, to find these terrible murderers who were responsible for 9-11 and other uh, terrorist incidents. But in that very understandable desire, uh, we don't want to give up the very system of government that differentiates us from the terrorists, which is about the Constitution and civil liberties and privacy. So, Yeah, that's what we're fighting for, right? Isn't that, that what we're fighting global terrorism about? To have the civil liberties, to have the freedom, to have the liberty that our forefathers have fought for so hard for. And we us have too. To be, uh, we have to be humble that we don't really know the answer as to where the balance should be struck. We want to defeat these terrorists, and I'm willing to stretch and even bend my concept of civil liberties and privacy rights in order to accomplish that goal. I will bend, but I won't break. And I don't know where the breaking point is. Nobody does. Everybody has to make that decision individually. And my colleagues, uh, the other four members of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board, may have had different points in that balance, but they all recognize that both goals were necessary, and that's what's important. Lanny, we are so glad that you spent this hour with us. That was so kind of you. I know that you have had a hard day, and it's late there, and you are terrific. Thank and you, uh, And we will be talking to you. I'm going to keep in touch with you and Please. watch all the great things that you're doing and, and uh, send you an email and tell you, go for it, boy. <laughs> Thanks. Please keep in touch, and thank you for having me on your show. Great. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We've just been speaking with Lanny Davis, former special consul to President Clinton and a former member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board for President Bush. He is the author of scandal gotcha politics is destroying america and you got to read it it was really great and you i am mari frank your host of privacy piracy please visit kuci.org slash privacy piracy and see our former guests listen to our previous interviews download podcasts see who's coming up and please join us every wednesday night here from 5 to 6 p.m right here on kuci thanks lloyd great engineer good night the opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm a 
attorney Mari Frank, co-host of Privacy Piracy. How private is your confidential information? Who is watching you on surveillance cameras or listening in on your private phone conversations? Think of all the information you give up each day, from the fast track scans on the morning commute to the credit card purchases at Starbucks to your cell phone tracking, airline ticket, car rental records, and even the logging of PC keystrokes at work. These bits of data are shared with companies and the government to create a detailed dossier of your daily activities. How are your profiles used and what can you do to protect yourself? We'll answer these questions and more when you listen to Privacy Piracy, Wednesday evenings from 5 to 6 p.m. at KUCI 88.9 FM or www.KUCI.org. All units, be on the lookout for Zydeco Buffalo. Jake Bacon, he's armed with Cajun music, spicy stuff. We must stop him immediately. All units, be on the lookout. Jake Bacon and Buffalo Bayou here on KUCI on Wednesday is armed and dangerous with Zydeco Records. Look out, this man is dangerous. Last seen with an alligator under his arm, heading towards Studio A at KUCI. This man is dangerous and definitely full of Zydeco. All units, Jake Bacon. Desperate criminal, DJ. For all your Cajun and Zydeco needs, it's Buffalo Bayou with Jake Bacon every Wednesday at 12 Pacific, 2 p.m. Central on KUCI. The State Public Interest Research Groups are a network of independent, state-based, citizen-funded organizations that advocate for the public interest. Since 1970, they have been delivering results-oriented citizen activism to protect our environment, encourage a fair and sustainable economy, and foster a responsive democratic government. They uncover threats to public health and well-being and fight to end them using the time-tested tools of investigative research, media exposure, grassroots organizing, advocacy, and litigation. Please visit PIRG.org. Thank you. Last year, up to $65 million in earned income tax credits went unclaimed in Orange County. Orange County United Way wants to put these dollars back into the pockets of hardworking families to help move them out of poverty. To get more information on who qualifies for earned income tax credit and locations for free tax preparation days, call 714-571-5259. To volunteer to assist Orange County United Way in its mission to help impact lives, please visit www.unitedwayoc.org.